0: 1 Corinthians 9, 1 through 27. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord." This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for the oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we, do not we even more? Nevertheless, We have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living from the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel." For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward, but if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive perishable wealth, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified." May God richly bless the reading of his word this morning. 20 years ago, now retired anchor man, anchor person Tom Brokaw wrote a book in which he coined the phrase the greatest generation. Brokaw was referring to those born between 1901 and 1924 those who'd lived through the Great Depression and served during the Second World War this term greatest generation came about because it was this group that suffered through a damaging prolonged economic downturn and then on the heels of this volunteered on mass to run into harm's way many of these people lived with nothing and then gave everything. And it was this selflessness that inspired Brokaw as he wrote. I was born in 1984. And that makes me a millennial. On the older end of the millennial age spectrum, but a millennial nonetheless. Now, we millennials have not been looked upon with the same kind of adulation and respect as those from the greatest generation. In fact, in many of the articles, blogs, books that I've read, the millennial generation, my generation, has been referred to as the entitled generation. Amen. Who said amen? (laughs) I guess we could probably end right there, couldn't we? This comprised of 20 and 30-somethings who've rarely been told no and who've been conditioned to believe that they are the center of their world. Now whether this is an overgeneralization or not, I think we can all agree that entitlement can be a damaging thing. If left unchecked, it can remove thankfulness entirely from the equation and instead replace it with expectation. What we receive becomes our due as opposed to what we receive is a gift of God. As we come to chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians, we see this creeping entitlement within the church community as they question Paul and his leadership. So in the time that we have today, I want want us to take note of three key things from this passage. Firstly, I want us to take note of the sense of entitlement coming from the Corinthian church. We need to see it. We need to feel it. We need to experience it together as we study. We need to understand its roots. Secondly, I want us to take note of the Apostle Paul's response. Because in the midst of dealing with this group... Of baby Christians who clearly feel as though their needs are not being met, he showcases not an attitude of entitlement, but rather a servant heart. And flowing from this, rather incredibly, a desire to teach those who would question his gifts. And thirdly, we'll compare these two views. And what I want us to see here is that the entitlement of the Corinthians and the servant leadership of Paul are the end result, the fruit, if you will, of the way in which each views the world. That very simply for the Corinthians, it starts and finishes with them. Whereas for the Apostle Paul, it starts with Christ and finishes with Christ. That we would see this truth and that we would go about squashing entitlement wherever it might show itself in our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit. The main point then for today is this. That this is God's world. And this is God's story. And as we understand this and embrace this, it will lead us to respond, as did Paul, for the glory of God and the truth of the gospel. For those of you who are new to Jesus, my hope is that you'll leave here with the biblical understanding that it's not about us, that it's bigger than ourselves. And that we were created by God and rescued through the cross of Christ to worship Him, to serve Him, and to serve others. And for those of us who are seasoned, church-going, Bible-believing, Christ-following brothers and sisters, my hope is that we'll gain a deeper understanding of what it means to be holy as Jesus is holy. To not be content with where we are right now, but rather to be hungry for the good news of Christ to take hold more deeply in our lives as well as in the lives of those around us. That's where we're going. Let's take a moment to pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for, again, these moments that you've given us to meet, to study your word together. We pray that you would speak to us this morning in a powerful way. We pray that you would increase as we decrease. We thank you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Are you with me? Firstly, a little bit about the Corinthian church and that creeping entitlement. As we come upon the scene, we see Paul preparing to defend himself against those who are questioning essentially everything about him. Again, 1 Corinthians 9, 1 through 3 says this, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord?" If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. So things that we see here straight away, the Corinthians are asking all sorts of questions about Paul his validity as an apostle, his leadership capabilities and credentials, his ministry motives, his evangelism methods, all of these things are coming into question. And on top of that, it would seem as though they're attempting to brush aside the role that Paul played in bringing them the gospel in the first place. Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? Paul asks rhetorically. Why are the Corinthians asking these questions of Paul? To put it bluntly, they're trying to work Paul out of the equation. And Paul certainly feels the pressure of this situation. We see that in verse 3, he goes as far as to use legal terms to color this exchange. He says, this is my defense to those who would examine me. Paul feels in these moments as though he's been put on trial, placed on the stand and cross-examined. And it's here that we get a first-hand look at this entitlement of the Corinthians. They feel as though they are entitled to their type of leader. The type of leader that they envisioned and assumed would be provided to them. Their view is narrow. It's based on what they think will work It's based on how they think a leader should act and preach and teach and evangelize and conduct themselves in a public setting. It's based on a response to the secular culture that they see around them. That those people over there have an amazing leader that does all of those things well. And so that's what we want. That's what we need. That's what we desire. And most importantly, the Corinthian view is void of the life and truth of the Spirit of God because it rejects the call that God has placed on the life of the Apostle Paul as a church planter, as a missionary, and as a leader of the early Christians. Stephen Um within his commentary on 1 Corinthians says this, What the Corinthians want is a strong, articulate, impressive, showy, culturally acceptable leader. Now what does culturally acceptable mean? We know from history that leaders who rose to the top of ancient structures did so because more often than not, they had a masterful way with words, thoughts, opinions. They could work a crowd. They appealed to a wide swath of people. They had a message that was new or exciting or experimental, pushing the envelope and drawing people in with their musings. They were the rock stars of the ancient world, if you will. Um continues. The Corinthian church wants to identify with someone like this someone who is well known, someone who can go toe to toe with the philosophers in town, these rock stars. And the reality is, from what we read of the Apostle Paul, he wasn't necessarily showy or flashy, and because of this, many within the church wanted him removed. And as we continue on, we see a specific issue concerning money, in that the Corinthians were upset by the fact that Paul wouldn't take their money. And again, you know, just to give you a little bit of context, popular philosophers and teachers and public speakers and orators, they made their living from money that was given to them by their hearers, their fan clubs, if you will. As their message resonated with an audience, as they gained a larger following, they got paid. And you can see how this would become a little bit tricky, mainly because the money and the other perks often caused this relational debt that these public figures owed their supporters because of the way that they'd paid them and sheltered them and fed them. And so often what you would have is this undercurrent of influence coming from those who felt as though these men owed them something. And the Corinthians influenced, I'm sure, by what they had seen and experienced, were most likely under the assumption that their leader, i.e. Paul, would operate in much the same way, perhaps even conceding values, beliefs, structures, until he was molded into the type of leader with which they could work. So again, we see this sense of entitlement coloring the Corinthians' desires and motives and actions. They are clearly at the center of their own story. They feel as though they deserve a certain type of leader. And if they can't get there through reasonable means, then maybe it's time to look somewhere else. Next, we read of Paul's response. And in fact, this is the rest of the chapter. I have a, a five-year-old daughter, and she loves Lego. And I couldn't be happier because I also love Lego. And I feel like if it were... <laughs> uh, yeah, we won't go there. Anyway... She had a birthday a few weeks ago, and for her birthday, she received a box of Lego. And as the party was wrapping up, she wanted to unbox it and play with it, which is fine. Amanda and I told her that she could do that, but first she needed to help us with the cleaning. And in that moment, (laughs) she looked at us as only a five-year-old who knows everything can do. And she said, but that's my Lego, And I want to open it now. What I wanted to say at this point was this Are you serious right now? In all of your wisdom, you think you're the one that's entitled to this box of Lego. Okay, then let's work this through. Let's take the logic train, if you will, to its inevitable conclusion. I drove to the store. I paid for the Lego with my money, I drove it home, ergo, if anybody in this room is entitled to the Lego, it's not the five-year-old lawyer standing in the corner, it's me. Now obviously I didn't say that. We encouraged her again to help us and she did, but my point is this. Paul responds to the critique and the criticism of the Corinthians and their sense of entitlement by saying this, you want to talk about rights? You want to talk about what's deserved? Okay, let's work this through. And let's use the example of money that you've so obviously placed at the forefront of this discussion. And then for 10 verses from 4 to 14, Paul lays it out, this, this five-tiered response on why if anybody deserves to get paid to live the good life, if anyone has a right to entitlement, it's him. And I want to take you through these just really briefly. So if you do have a Bible open, just keep your finger on this chapter because we're going to be, we're going, to be going through several verses here in the next few moments. Firstly, in verses 4 through 7, we see the reality of the situation. Paul has worked his tail off in order to build up this community. He's protected it as a soldier. He's helped it to grow. And currently, he's doing his best to shepherd a flock that keeps running in all directions. So why would he not be paid as a minister is paid? Secondly, we see in verses 8 through 10 that Paul uses scriptural precedent, citing Deuteronomy 25, verse 4, where it says, Don't muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. This is a command of mercy, but it's meant to show that laborers, even the non-humankind, are allowed basic comforts as well as remuneration for their work. Thirdly, in verses 11 and 12, we see that Paul is appealing to straight-up common sense. He says, If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? Paul is saying, even if your motives are super suspect... At its very basic, you're right in the assumption that we should be offered money for these services that we continue to provide at great personal cost to ourselves and our lives. Fourthly, Paul points to religious custom, something for which the Corinthians would have been very familiar living in a largely paganistic but religious city. Verse 13 says this, Don't you know that those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple? And that those who serve at the altar share in what's offered at the altar. And finally, the mic drop moment where Paul points out the words of Jesus himself. In verse 14, In the same way the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. Paul does all of this, firstly to show that money is not about leverage, that it's a right with no strings attached based on all of these precedents, but more importantly, and this is the hinge, he does all of this to highlight that for him it's not about being entitled to something, it's not about getting his due, it's not about cashing checks, And it certainly isn't about holding court with some kind of weird fan club. He says all of this, goes through all of this, takes the time to illustrate all of this in order to highlight the fact that for him, what trumps all of this is the idea of being faithful to the calling that God has placed on his life. That it's not about him. We read in verse 16, for when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast since I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. He's not going to take the money. He was never going to take the money. He doesn't say that receiving payment for a job well done is a bad thing. On the contrary, he quotes Jesus to reinforce the fact that money for work is an honorable thing. But for him, the calling is clear and compelling. The Lord's commands are succinct and his mission, motives, and path are clear. His role is to be a servant to all without leaving a footprint. To those who know the saving work of Jesus, he's called to encourage and to hold accountable and to teach and to guide and to shepherd. And to those who don't know the Lord, Paul is called to lay down his freedoms in order to develop relationships and work within various cultural settings for the sake of the gospel. We see this played out in verses 19-19. Through 23, it says this, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To a Jew, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Here's the calling again. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share in its blessings. Again, Paul ends by emphasizing the calling of God in his life. Paul isn't doing this because Paul thinks it's a good idea. He's not doing this because he thinks it might benefit him in some humanistic, temporary way. Paul is doing this because this is what the Lord requires of him at this moment in history for the sake of the gospel. And so what we see here in this chapter is a clear contrast. The Corinthians are viewing the world through a lens of, it's all about me. They're concerned about themselves, what they want, how they look, how they're perceived, and I'm sure there's a a very large part of them that's quite scared. What if we don't measure up? What if our church fails? What if we miss the boat What if this whole thing implodes on us? Paul, on the other hand, in the midst of this defense regarding money and ministry freedoms, is attempting to show this community what it means to view the world through a lens of Christ, following the Jesus example of servanthood, trust for provision and faithfulness. Friends, to move away from a world in which we are the center is a massive paradigm shift. It flies in the face of most of what we see around us, that it's about us, that the now is all that matters, and that our actions and reactions have to come from what we're feeling, sensing, desiring. And so I can see why the Corinthians would be struggling to understand and embrace this shift. I struggle with this, and I've heard this message my whole life. Nevertheless, it should be clear to us that these two views are incompatible. They have nothing in common other than the paper that they're written on. A worldview that begins with the self says this is what's owed to me. This is why it's owed to me. And this is when I want it. And a worldview based on the saving love of Christ says, what I'm owed because of sin is death. What I've been freely given because of Christ is life. And because of this, I'm going to love God and I'm going to love on others and I'm going to serve them just as Jesus first served me until the day that I walk from this life into the next No strings attached. Keep in mind here, and this is crucial, this is crucial, that Paul never asks us to be like him. Rather, he implores the Corinthians and us to exalt Christ. It's not about Paul. It's never been about Paul. It will never be about Paul. It's all about Christ. All of us are somewhere on our journey of faith. Many of us have made the decision to become Christians, and many of the, many of us I'm sure uh, haven't. The biblical reality is squashing entitlement begins with the recognition that we are not our own, that we were bought with a price. That as we come to know Christ, as we trust in Him and His saving work on the cross for forgiveness of sins, as we give Him control, as we grow in our desire to serve and honor Him, as we understand and embrace our role in the story, He is given the seat of honor in our lives. We remove ourselves as the centerpiece and we look to God recognizing that history and eternity are His and that we are called to play a part in his story by being faithful to the calling of God on our lives. Paul sacrificed much for the sake of the gospel. He sacrificed his finances, his personal life, his freedom as he saw fit, his body and his mind, verse 27 that he might honor God and exalt Christ. And friends, it's likely that God isn't asking you to sacrifice all of these things, but I guarantee you this, he is asking you to sacrifice something, and that is your story for the sake of his story. When I'm with my worship teams, I'll often pray, And we prayed it already this morning. God, that you might increase as we decrease. This is an appropriate prayer always. But may it be on our hearts and minds today as we leave this place. That he might increase as we decrease that we might have the proper God-honoring, Christ-exalting perspective and that our lives might flow from this point into a life of worship and service. Worship team, I want you to come. We sang this song last week that in closing, I'd like for us to sing again. It's a song called All Glory Be to Christ, and I just I want to finish this morning by reading the first verse before we sing, and it says simply this: Should nothing of our efforts stand, no legacy survive, unless the Lord does raise the house, in vain its builders strive. To you who boast tomorrow's gain, tell me, what is your life? A mist that vanishes at dawn. All glory be to Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the truth of your word. And very simply, may you be glorified in this place and in our hearts as we go. And for those who don't know you, I pray that in these moments you would be continuing to reveal to them how much you love them how much you want a relationship with them. And may we have the courage to proclaim this great truth now and always. In Christ's holy and precious name we pray. Amen.